Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetInst.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. I think we're due for a cultural rebranding around crying. I think that crying, you know, if we start to cry, we inevitably apologize or invariably apologize. We sort of suck it back in and make it as small as it can be, like the way someone would pinch back a sneeze. We're like holding the tears back, making it smaller, collecting ourselves. And, you know, if you know somebody who's crying frequently, you're like, they're in a bad place. And I think that we really need to see crying as this deep wisdom from our body saying, you need a release right now, let's have one. And when you get an opportunity to cry, dive into it and let it be big. Let it be complete rather than smaller, like let it be bigger. So says Dr. Ellen Vora, a Columbia University trained psychiatrist who takes a functional and holistic approach to mental health. Namely, she treats the whole system, looking for where states like anxiety and depression might be rooted in the body, whether it's less than ideal nutrition, an out-of-whack gut, or poor sleep and breathing. In her just-launched book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, she tackles this state that is ever-present for many of us. In fact, it's easy to argue that if you aren't feeling anxious, you aren't really alive in this complex, difficult roller coaster of a time. But in Ellen's model, she differentiates between true and false anxiety. Both are very real and valid concerns. For false anxiety, typically there's an imminently treatable physical route that can be addressed until the body comes back into balance and the mind calms. True anxiety, on the other hand, is an alarm clock that something is not right, that you're out of alignment or integrity in some way. In today's episode, we talk about both, including the overwhelming load that we're all carrying and how important it is to cry. We also explore psychedelics and what it really means to heal. Okay, let's get to today's conversation. Obviously, 
I find you expert in many things, and I've known you for an awfully long time. But why anxiety? It's completely born out of the problems that are showing up in my office. So I'm up for writing a book on a number of different topics. I could have written about bipolar or depression or just about psychedelics. But right now, it's like it hits me over the head every day that where people are suffering and where they need support fast is around anxiety. Yeah. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I have an anxiety disorder. And it's one of those things that's intergenerational. I, I ha- my mom has it. My aunt has it. I think my son has it. And I loved your book because I loved you. I thought it was it felt very conversational, sort of like engaging with you in a long walk, which is one of my favorite things to do. But I love this sort of dichotomy that you set up at the beginning around true anxiety and false anxiety and starting to tease out. One, I like that you honor all of it. I just want to say that. It's all very real, but it can have different causes. And maybe it's a spiritual awakening and maybe it's a a caffeine addiction, right? Yeah. Yeah. That dichotomy, (laughs) it feels really important to me that we have a slightly different conversation about anxiety because right now, you know, we're just... We've inherited the way of thinking about anxiety that comes from the DSM, the Bible of mental health field. And it has its merits, but it's basically telling us, well, your anxiety is either generalized anxiety disorder, or maybe it's panic disorder, with or without agoraphobia, or one of the various other classifications. And the intention with these different classifications is is really always to steer management. And in the conventional approach to anxiety, that does steer management. It says like, oh, if you've met these criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, then perhaps medication is indicated. Or if it's panic, maybe you should pursue cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's kind of useful, but it's, it has no bearing on how I approach care with anxiety. And for me, what steers management much more usefully is to divide anxiety into two categories, false anxiety, true anxiety. And false anxiety, that term false is by no means to invalidate the very real suffering of anxiety, but it speaks to the straightforward path out. False anxiety is avoidable anxiety. It doesn't need to be happening. And it's usually the result of a pretty mundane physical state of imbalance, usually precipitated by something like a blood sugar crash or being sleep deprived, or maybe you ate something your body doesn't tolerate, you're inflamed, maybe you have food poisoning, Maybe you're a little deficient in micronutrients like vitamin B12. And there could be a number of other sources of false anxiety. And the idea here is do the investigation, figure out what is the culprit in your case, address it, and then walk away from that anxiety from your life. You don't need that anxiety. It's not serving any ultimate purpose. But then true anxiety, very much on the other hand, is not something to pathologize. It's not something we really can medicate away. It's certainly not something that we can caffeine-free and gluten-free our way out of. It is here as purposeful anxiety. It speaks to our relationship to this life with all of its vulnerabilities. And I think it also has a lot to do with what we are uniquely here, our unique perspective, where we can make a contribution. And I don't mean that to be such a weighty, heavy like putting this big responsibility on everybody. It's really just to say that that thing that really matters to you, it matters and you're uniquely positioned to make some difference around it. So slow down, pay attention to it, take some steps in the name of, like see that true anxiety as a call to action. Yeah, and to me, 
my anxiety exists on somewhere on the spectrum. So there are certain things that are theoretically within my control that will inspire it or set me off. I, t- I hyperventilate, so I overbreathe, which I think is actually very undiagnosed, underdiagnosed. People don't really know what it is, and they associate hyperventilation with panicking and breathing into a bag. But for me, it's that, I mean, you know this better than I do, but I I can't take a deep breath because I already have too much oxygen in my system, but it sends a suffocation message to my brain that I'm going to fucking die. So it's really terrifying, and I'm used to it at this point. I can get into a hyperventilation cycle for months, weeks, where by the afternoon I'm sort of almost panting, and it's really debilitating. But it is usually a factor of sleep disruption, like I'm a little bit of a baby about my sleep, and then too much caffeine, which you brought to my attention years ago, and then it sort of gets me going. And then the existential part of it is this long-standing fight with my body where my body's the last thing I listen to. And the last sort of thing that I honor where it's this perpetual going back to Yale. So for people who are listening, Ellen and I went to college together. And in college, I found that if I took six credits, we needed four, I think. Mm -hmm. If I took six credits, I just generally did better. I needed that sort of like extra drive in order to excel. And then if I don't have enough to do, I don't get anything done. So it's that like productivity whip. So this is a terrible pattern. And that's what is provoked my my anxiety cycle is this internal despair that I have and anger <laughs> at myself around driving, taking on too much, spreading too myself way too thin. And I just can't stop doing it. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in in its relationship to the idea of taking six course credits when you could be and should be taking four. It's almost like with your breathing and with lifestyle, the, the block here is that you can't slow down. Even when the sort of sped up life, sped up breathing, rapid, shallow breaths are really creating a snowball effect of suffering and discomfort. It's like your body (laughs) literally doesn't have the right carbon dioxide oxygen ratio to be able to slow down. It's an interesting one. I remember the last time we talked about your breathing. I I think breathing is such an underappreciated factor in anxiety. I wish I had said more about it in the book. There is a section on it, but at this point I could write a whole chapter about it. And so often people struggling with anxiety, and this is a form of false anxiety. It's, it's improper breathing. And what I see most commonly is it relates to structural issues with the nose and the hard palate. And that itself is created by aspects of modern life, like multi-generations of a soft diet and micronutrient deficiencies. So when you look at like remaining hunter gatherer societies on the planet, they have these diets, these traditional diets that really prize the most nutrient dense foods like organ meats and, you know, the ghee made from the cows that ate the first spring grass and these kinds of concepts, cod liver oil. And so they get vitamins, A, D, E, K, all these things that are a little bit in short supply in like a modern Western diet. And it helps people develop broad 
strong jaws and wide dental arches. And so the whole mouth kind of develops wide. It allows the large, the, the hard palate to be a broad shape. And all of this creates really good airflow through the nasal passages, modern life, soft diets, underdeveloped jaws, narrow, hard palates, crowded teeth and improper airflow through the nose. And that has so many impacts on our totally. mental health and it affects yeah. how we can sleep, which in turn impacts every aspect of our mental health and certainly impacts how well we can focus during the day, but there's no stronger stress symbol signal to the body than I can't breathe. And it's even more than blood sugar crashes, right? Like it's a yeah. faster way of the body thinking I'm going to die. And when you can't get a good breath, it's going to trip you into, it sounds almost like you get into a cycle that then reinforces itself. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly, They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, Treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. I'm sure you read Breath by James Nestor, and when I interviewed him, that obviously is a topic close to my heart. And then I spoke to Rafael Paleos, the head of the Stanford Sleep Institute, or a physician there, and we were talking about breathing. And so I only as an adult realized that I'm tongue-tied. I now have sort of an alpha appliance to expand my palate, and when my dentist, my orthodontist adjusts my appliance, which I wear at night. Like he drops me into parasympathetic. He can like put pressure on my palate and it will drop me. It's the most profound relief. And I think that, you know, I'm a sensitive person. My son has the exact same pattern. 
So he also goes to the same dentist and has an elf appliance that they that's in his mouth permanently to expand his palate. And I'm trying to help him. Like he exhibits the exact same tendency. So it is it's structural. It's I think my one of my ribs is pinned to my who knows. I mean, we just contort ourselves over time. But as you say, you know, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, before I had a better understanding of my dad's ironically a pulmonologist and I have subtle asthma as well. But the common reaction is like, well, it's just in your head. Like you're just anxious and you need to deal with your anxiety, which is true and false, right? So as it, the book, I think, is is wonderful in the sense that it actually has – there's nothing more annoying than being told you're just creating your own distortion field. <laughs> I'm here to kind of like flip that on its head. And like we've had this whole, you know, very misogynistic, really, like, you know, dismissive of the hysterical to be saying at this point, it's all in your head, often to women, often to women who seem to be like making a audacious attempt to advocate for their health needs in the doctor's office. How dare they? And I think <laughs> that rather than it's all in your head, the first half of my book is actually really saying it's all in your body, that your anxiety is a downstream consequence of a state of physical imbalance in your body. And, you know, Will Cole, who we both know has a wonderful way of saying this. He's like, mental health is physical health. And I think that's the paradigm shift we need to begin with is to recognize like all these things that we're even starting to blame ourselves for. Like, oh, I just need to rein in my anxiety. It's all in my head. Look first to the body, get that into a state of balance. Then we'll see where we're at. And often people are considerably less anxious, considerably less depressed, ADHD improves when we get the physical body imbalance, which isn't necessarily an easy path, but it's a doable path. And that's what I outline in a very actionable way, the first half of the book. Yeah. But then what remains behind that is not something for us to be shaming or pathologizing. That's really, we maybe just need to rebrand how we experience it, that urgency rather than feeling it as a nuisance or something to try to eradicate can we see that as purposeful? Can it sort of transmute into a feeling of this is what drives me, like a libidinous drive towards making a contribution? And I think that that's how I want to shake out that conversation in a different direction. Like it's not all in your head, but the part that is in your head is really in your heart. And that is mm. what you're here to do, who you're here to be. Mm, I love that. I want to I want to put a pin on that and talk about that in a minute. I'm glad you mentioned ADHD because I think you you point out, and it feels like this is starting to get a lot more awareness, and it's essential. It's one of the things that Raphael at Stanford was talking about. ADHD for children is potentially a sleep disorder, and or that that's a, a massive – that sleep apnea in children is underdiagnosed because they don't fit our, this model that we have that you're an overweight man who snores – and that, you know, it goes back to that mouth breathing and narrow palate issues that sleep should be assessed as part of any treatment plan for someone diagnosed with ADHD yeah. or an adult. So let's talk about some of the practical sleep. Obviously, you talk about sleep a lot and sort of it's all of its essential upsides, like the glymphatic system. And can you talk us through sort of the toolkit where yeah, you would want people to start? Yeah, mm -hmm. just in general, like the first things that you rule out when someone presents with anxiety. 
yeah. false anxiety. Yeah, sleep is is sleep is definitely a place that I start when I'm trying to address anxiety from the physical angle. And I like to say that sleep is eminently treatable. Like it's an issue that plagues so many of us in modern life, but for the most part, the body knows how to sleep, wants to sleep. There's some aspect of how we're leading our modern lives. That's getting in the way of us being able to fall asleep and sleep deeply. I will caveat by saying, I think perimenopause and menopause is a tricky situation, shift labor, jet lag, certain really organic sleep disorders can be trickier to manage, but for the most part, we can improve our sleep. And even in those cases, there are things we can do to improve sleep. So I start this sleep approach by really thinking about light because it really comes down to our circadian rhythm and our whole circadian rhythm. It's a good design. It's basically saying that light makes us release cortisol. So we feel awake and alert and darkness allows us to release melatonin so we can feel sleepy. And that whole thing was foolproof on the proverbial savanna of evolution, where if it was nighttime, it was by definition dark out and you could only really see fire and the moon. But in modern life, after the sun sets, we're surrounded by a psychedelic light show. We have our laptop open to a spreadsheet on the couch. The overhead lights are on. We bring our phones into bed with us. And so even just getting strategic about light and making sure our eyeballs see some actual sunlight first thing in the morning, and that after sunset, we're somehow preventing our eyes from getting exposed to blue spectrum light. And there's two main ways to achieve that. And one is a simple strategy of selling your house, quitting your job, moving off the grid, homesteading, throwing your phone into the ocean and, you know, just living that lifestyle, which is great. And then if you don't want to go all in on that just yet, then you could just get blue blocking glasses, which I also give my blessing to. That's what I do. And I put them on at sunset. I wear them until bedtime and it at least blocks my eyes from seeing blue spectrum light. So it's not going to suppress my melatonin and disrupt circadian rhythm. So that's where I start. There are a lot of other strategies that are helpful. I think we can all at least reflect on bedtime. That's an interesting one. The remaining hunter-gatherer societies on earth seem to have arrived at a somewhat consistent bedtime. It's around three hours after sunset. So that's the time to look for your tired signs. Is that when you're yawning and falling asleep on the couch, that might be the right time to swoop yourself into your bed then you fall asleep easily because it's the sweet spot when you're perfectly tired. Whereas what most of us do is we push past that because modern life and we still have to clean the kitchen and we still have to do more logistics and open our laptop up one more time to finish a little bit of work at night. So then we're pushing past the point when we're perfectly tired and we get into a state of being overtired, which anybody who's a parent is like, ah, yes, overtired. Didn't know that was a concept that existed until I had a newborn. And then we all learn the hard way what happens when a kid gets overtired. And they're tired one minute. And then once they're overtired, they're like crying uncontrollably and arching their back and emanating heat. And <laughs> we're adults. We are just oversized toddlers in so many ways. And we also get overtired. So if you know that you get that second wind feeling, you're sort of tired, but wired, and then you're tossing and turning when you're trying to fall asleep, it might be worth pushing your bedtime a little earlier, looking for your tired signs somewhere around three hours after sunset. Okay. No, I liked I liked that subtle shift because what in my mind I had thought, oh, when it gets dark, you're supposed to go to bed, which is obviously deeply impractical. But three hours is doable. It's very it lands you right in my personal sweet spot. And I think we are. It does feel like culturally we're starting to shift from this like I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality to prioritizing rest, like that yeah. sort of old idea seems to be dying. It's just, as you said, often feels impractical, particularly 
for parents or people who are doing their second and third shift. And then that, and I love that it has a name, sort of this idea of that me time, that like insistence on like, I'm just going to screw it and be on my phone because I, this is the only me time I get. The sort of like rebellion bedtime procrastination that we do where it's like, (laughs) F my life, I'm going to be on my phone at 11.45 PM because, you know, everyone needed so much from me all day. It's my time. And then it's actually just, you know, we're shooting ourselves in our own foot because we are not getting to bed in time to get enough sleep. It's a tricky puzzle. I think that we're in this great rethink right now where can we create lives that we don't need to escape from quite so much at night and no easy answers there, but it's at least worth reflecting on. I liked your discussion of food too. I thought it was nuanced and fair in the sense of sort of like this, the way that all of these strictures on how we're supposed to eat feel very patriarchal. And then also like how big ag, et cetera, is a patriarchal system too, but that we often will fight one. I have certainly felt that way, like that that rebellious teenagerness in the last like year or two where I'm like, I'm not going to be restrictive and screw this. And I, you know, no, no, no. and then I, in a way I'm like, but I really should probably not be standing in the middle of my kitchen, inhaling chicken fingers and fries, like dusted with whatever. I'm uh, not good things. (laughs) It's interesting, right? Because there's absolutely sort of patriarchal ideals and toxic diet culture. And at this point, even toxic wellness culture telling us like, eat a perfect diet and, you know, entirely clean, which has this weird, like moral panic component to it. Like don't eat dirty food. And, and I think that of course, you know, these ideas of like to be small and to be perfectly thin, whether or not that's anywhere near what your body wants to be. And so understandably, and with the right intention, we've pushed back against that. And we've kind of been like, F it all. And that's where body positivity comes in. And there's so much good to that, to sort of speak truth to that power and those pressures that we put people on to understand that weight is not necessarily an indication of health. And so, you know, that's not the right metric to be using to understand whether or not somebody is healthy and even to have bigger conversations around like, is physical health everybody's goal, you know, and, and to have an acknowledgement of the systemic factors that are making it harder for certain populations to have that state of physical health. And all that being said, I think we swing not just too far, but like two in one direction with body positivity, which is like, well, then I'm just going to have no restrictions and eat whatever I want. And in a weird way, there's this other patriarchy standing in that corner over there, like the big food company just being like, (laughs) (laughs) thank you for championing our cause. And so then what we do is we reach for the drug-like foods and it's sort of no longer an act of radical self-love. It just becomes like an addiction to a service that another patriarchy is selling us. And I think can we find that balance where we are feeding ourselves well, nourishing ourselves from a place of radical self-love, but not from a place of restriction or sort of moral superiority around eating clean. It's what makes our bodies feel good. And can we do that in this world that makes it really hard to eat well? And so can we do it without feeling fragile and afraid of food? Can we do it without too much strain and driving ourselves crazy? I think it's really challenging. I try to live this balance, but I see many of my patients falter it's not easy to find the right rhythm with it. Yeah. And even sort of the name body positivity inherently is implying how we should be feeling, which I think is difficult. We have very complex relationships with our bodies. And so this like the stricture of feel positive is also its own kind of box, 
where really, you know, I think with the call of anxiety as well, it's like, well, actually, what is your body trying to say? And can you decode its appetites and what it wants and what it needs? Like so much of life is trying to figure out how to understand the language. And I think it's so hard as women. I tend to dissociate from my body. Our bodies aren't don't always feel safe. They don't always feel loved. We often feel betrayed by them. I don't know if it's as complex for men, but I feel like for a lot of the women I know, just like actually getting into your body and loving your body is a challenge. This patient brilliantly put it one day. She was like, she was like, I feel like my therapy with you, Dr. Vora, is actually couples therapy between me and my body. And yeah. it was interesting how like that was, you know, I didn't even realize that's what we were doing, but the focus really was on how can we slow down and have a conversation with our body, have mutual respect, not be so entrenched in our positions of I feel betrayed by you, or I don't like you, or you're the enemy. And how can we see ourselves as on the same team as our bodies? Can we extend love? Can we understand like an an open line of inquiry of like, help me understand what you need. Help me understand what you're trying to tell me. And, you know, it can feel goofy to anybody who doesn't like to like lie in their bed with their hands and their tummy talking to their body. But I encourage people to kind of go into that goofy space and try to open up those lines of communication in a really sweet way, like bringing, bringing a lot of like the same gentleness and compassion you would bring to really trying to heal any kind of troubled relationship that you're fighting to rehabilitate. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too. In therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, 
pttt. What do you advise? I mean, I will say a really important point for me in my relationship with my body. I know we just were talking about this as as a potentially toxic, but was when, the first time I actually did I did the clean program. I did Dr. Younger's program. It's the first time I'd ever done anything like this. This was many, many, many years ago. It was after I had my first baby and I felt really terrible and had been dismissed by my OBGYN who I loved, but was like, he was very, you know, I was one of the, my second baby was like the last baby he delivered. He was, you know, at the end, end of his career of a different era. And I remember going to him and I was like, I don't feel good. And he was like, you're fine. You're a new mom. And I was like, please test my iron. And I was wildly anemic, like to the point where he was startled the second time they wanted to give me a transfusion because I get so anemic during pregnancy. Anyway, I did clean program and I younger put me on some other things like B12, etc. And oh my God, I just felt dramatically better. Like it just reset something for me. And as he said, he's like, well, you're just like cleaning the walls. Because as I started to reintroduce things, I could understand actually. I could read the signals from my body of what it liked and didn't like. No problem with gluten, for example. Don't tolerate dairy, even though I insist on eating it. So all of that said, I don't do that all I don't I haven't done it in years but do you recommend for people who are just sort of like have no sense of what's happening how do you get them to that place of truth where they can actually sense like oh my body does not like broccoli yeah I think yeah you raise such a good point there is that sort of the toxic orthorexic adjacent quality of like a cleanse and often when it's calorie restrictive it just lays the foundation almost like is kindling for developing any kind of obsession with food or a binge later. So that's, that's really tricky territory and thin iced out to beyond. I think that the trouble is, is that our modern processed food industry, it's pretty smart about how it engineers food. And oftentimes they've figured out how to make these, what I would call Franken foods, somewhat addictive. They can behave like drugs in a variety of different ways. And so I do think it's sometimes necessary to control alt delete our taste buds and our brain's sort of dopaminergic anticipation of the drug hit we're about to get from food. And there are different ways to do that. I'll usually point someone toward the whole 30 diet to basically have a, it's a really nice way of outlining, like, here's what you can eat and focus on nutrient density. And this isn't a diet. This is balanced. This is nourishing and substantial, but it takes out what might be tricking your brain um, into not just yearning for nourishment, but yearning for a drug hit. And I think that that's how I'll go about it. And I think I, I always want people to have in mind the compass for eating is generally err on the side of eating real food generally err on the side of avoiding fake food. And you want to listen for your cravings. They will guide you towards what nutrients your body needs, but you need to discern, is that a craving for a nutrient or is it a craving for a drug? And if your body's like, ah, oh, yes, my deep internal wisdom is telling me right now that what I really need is pizza. That's probably a craving for a drug. But if it's telling you, you need a dripping rare steak and you need a pile of mashed potatoes, that's probably a genuine need for some form of macronutrient or micronutrient. And so to just kind of ask yourself, is what it's craving a real food? In which case I'm going to honor that. And 
I think it, this loops into when you were feeling so lousy and iron and vitamin B12 helped you feel better. I think this is a really underappreciated aspect of postpartum anxiety. And there's a lot that goes into why someone might be anxious in the postpartum period. And, you know, you can sort of point to the obvious of like, oh shit, you just had a baby and now your life is transformed and you're not getting good sleep and the role transition, the expectations on women, the absolute, you know, just bankrupt level of child parental support we have in this country, so on and so forth, but we're also so nutritionally depleted. We grew a baby. We birthed a baby. Sometimes we bled profusely during that. And then we might be nursing a baby. And in Chinese medicine, I think they say one drop of breast milk is like 10 drops of chi or blood. It's basically understanding that this is your best stuff that you're giving over to the baby. So new moms are deeply nutritionally depleted and our brains it's just a piece of flesh in our body, like anything else, like any other organ. And it needs the raw materials in order to function properly for us to feel good and function well. And so a big part of supporting postpartum anxiety in my practice is repleting mom nutritionally. Yeah, no, obviously so under, and, and, but it feels like at least now there are a lot of antidotes or people trying to create antidotes and and raise awareness around postnatal depletion and its very real effects. And then obviously what happens is we then go on still depleted back to work. Often we go and get pregnant again within sort of a, a reasonable time span, but you're starting again from a place not only of depletion, but also getting older. And we just don't focus on that. It's not something tested. It's not stu- It's not understood or talked about by majority of OBGYNs. Like they're just, it's not nutritional part of it is not alas. But I do think awareness seems to be raising. In terms of women, I mean, I'm, I just read this book, which I loved. It might be out of print, but it's called The Natural Superiority of Women. It's by Ashley Montague. He's a late anthropologist, visionary anthropologist, trained by Franz Boas, who was, you know, Ashley and others addressed sort of UNESCO in 1950 to stipulate, like to assert there's no such thing, there's no such biological thing as race. This is not a real thing. So he's deeply ahead of his time. But the natural superiority of women is about how women are biologically more suited for survival. That's his definition of superiority. And he also talks about psychologically and and within stress responses, how studies around, he first wrote this book in like 1950 and then has updated it before he died. But I think it was during air raids and other incredible stressful cultural moments, women just endure, were able to like carry on in a much more durable way than men, which is contrary to what we would believe. I don't know what other studies there are. I'll find it. I can post it on social. But I wonder, too, in the context of something like COVID and the existential anxiety of this moment in time and all that women are carrying, the women I know in my life are killing it, killing themselves also in terms of pulling everything forward socially, at work, at home. Not that the men are lousy, but the women seem to have an incredible capacity. So do you feel like 
in our ability to sort of be the the donkeys really of like stress and how does that show up for us I certainly feel that way there are times when I look back and I'm like I don't know how I got through that and I know it's in my body but yeah what happens yeah I mean I think that you're bringing up such a great point it- it's the fact that we have such a deep reservoir of reserves that we can draw upon, I think does make it hard to catch that initial communication from our body of, you know, you can make this withdrawal on your energy, but you will need to pay me back at some point. I think we can miss that signal. Mm-hmm. And if you think about you with your six classes, you think about the character Luisa in Encanto, if you've seen that movie, the new Disney movie, like we can feel like we're carrying the weight of the world and we're managing, but there's an inertia to it. And if we just mm-hmm. keep going, keep going and never slow down and pause to ask the question, like, am I okay? Can I handle this? We'll just keep going there. It's momentum. But I do think that we miss some signs from our body that we are barreling towards burnout. And I do think that even though we have these reserves and we are this superior sex, that's better designed for survival. I do think we get ourselves into trouble with burnout. And what I think of as more of like a psychological state of resentment, I think we're more likely to take on all of these burdens from a place of obligation to do it, do it, do it. And then ultimately to resent that other people aren't helping to meet our needs, even though we're meeting their needs. And I actually think that's on us. I think that's on us to recognize our needs and and ask for them to be met and give people the opportunity to meet our needs if they want to not obligate them into it. But I also think that, you know, to go one step further, that's on our culture for making women never feel like we have a right to speak up, that somehow these feminine ideals are overlapping with selflessness. And so I think that I'm looking forward to what I think we're seeing the beginnings of is a cultural shift of just acknowledging I have needs. There's no shame in that. And to speak up for it and, and perhaps most importantly, to hear it from within our bodies when even though we can carry the weight of the world, can we save that capacity for when it's really necessary? But in a regular, on a regular Tuesday, do we need to be Louisa carrying every burden of our households and our communities? Can we actually balance showing up with rest and in that moment to moment, listening to our body and knowing here's when I can help joyfully. And here's when I need to take my rest. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. 
ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your ChiliPad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. No, I think that's so important that not only an assertion of needs, but I think that so many of us have been trained to not even assess our own and or identify them so that we can express them. You know, we've been taught that we don't really have needs. And in this other centric way in which we're, we're raised. And it's funny, too, I was speaking to a friend whose dog died, and it was tragic and, and awful, and she's been having a huge reaction to it. And, you know, I'm like, it's totally understandable. And I think she's a little bit like me. I was watching a Marvel movie with my kids and my husband this weekend, and at the end, I was crying quite profusely. And my husband was like, you really need a release. Like, you really need a cry. And that that's, I think... What I was saying to my friend, I was like, I think that you've just been also caring a lot. This is about more than the dog. The dog, yes, but this is – it's – your body is like, I haven't cried despite everything else in years. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. I mean, we have kids, young kids, right? So when you see a kid, they're heading into a meltdown. Like, I don't know about you. My husband and I will look at each other and be, like sort of start to do the postmortem. Like, how did this – meltdown come about and what did we do wrong? What was the misstep? But like often it's actually just that the child's body in its infinite wisdom understands it needs a release in that moment. Had a long day at school, learning a lot, learning to read, like learning how to be a person in the world. We're taking on a lot, caring a lot. And kids are still in touch with the fact that they need a release and they don't put up a barrier. They actually allow themselves that release. Adults, Mm. adult women, I think very much don't hear our need for a release and have so many barriers to giving ourselves that release. I think we're due for a cultural rebranding around crying. I think that crying, you know, if we start to cry, we inevitably apologize or invariably apologize. We sort of suck it back in and make it as small as it can be. Like the way someone Mm. would pinch back a sneeze. We're like holding the tears back, making it smaller, collecting ourselves. And, you know, if you know somebody who's crying frequently, you're like, they're in a bad place. And I think that we really need to see crying as this deep wisdom from our body saying, you need a release right now. Let's have one. And when you get an opportunity to cry, dive into it and let it be big. Let it be complete rather than smaller. Like, let it be bigger. And to really see it as good for that person. They're having a good cry. And often to see someone else crying and let it be an opportunity for us to cry as well, to use the sort of mirror neurons and empathy to just jump in and everyone is splashing around in salty tears. Mm. And I think that that is something that we just need to recognize is a positive thing. There's a component of our stress response called ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone, that actually comes out in our tears. So we, in certain ways, cut our stress response off at the roots when we allow ourselves to cry. Mm. And there's nothing sort of more painful 
I mean, there are things that are more painful, but that burning sort of that feeling, that moment when you're suppressing and you can feel it burning. I often feel like I'm just carrying around a very overfull bucket and I don't always know how to get it to the point where it can spill over. It's so, I think that that instinct to repress or suppress our emotions is so strong in so many of us because we don't have time to lose our shit. And and so I agree with you. I think the cultural conditioning or figuring out for me, it's like, what are the triggers? Like, how can we get this going? So we're letting the bucket deplete. Will Sue always says, you know, when he's seen me cry, he's like, don't bring your eyes to your face. Like, don't that we have so many automatic, like wiping or trying to stop. And he's like, just keep your hands away from your face. No Kleenex. Like, let it go. Keep it going. And maybe it's not always tears. I like that you bring up like shaking, dancing, like that sort of physical release too. So like, I think that there's so many beautiful ways to build in a release. And, you know, if it's physical exercise for you, great. It could be dancing. It could be journaling. It could be cuddling, could be playing with a puppy. I love shaking. I love putting on shamanic drum music and shaking for a couple minutes in between patients. For me, that really clears the slate. That's the control delete on my nervous system. I will say about crying two things. One is we could segue into psychedelics if we want to talk about that, because I feel like psychedelics taught me how to cry better. I like, I thought I had grieved. And then when I started working with psychedelics, I was like, wait, I had so much grief pent up and, and I, it like taught me how to open that portal so much more like a deep opening of the grief portal. And I think that if you do need help getting started with crying, Pixar movies, <laughs> like they're basically like tear porn, you know, <laughs> like they'll get you going and, and then get into the rhythm on your own of just whenever you need the release, give yourself that release. Yeah. No, let's talk about psychedelics. I think, and that grief portal, that's been, you are far more studied and in psychedelics than I am, but that's certainly every time that I've done them historically, that has been one of the primary lessons, which is just because you stuff it doesn't mean it goes away. It's in these suitcases and your body and it, it can be like a great attic cobweb release, sort of like really letting things out. Do you think, and and maybe even in terms of anxiety, although maybe anxiety is its own thing, I don't know about psychedelics and anxiety, certainly psychedelics and depression, but what do you think that they're great when done appropriately in a therapeutic setting with the integration? I think people too, like the, the experience in of itself is very powerful, but the integration around it, the therapy around it is often more powerful. What do you think the, the great promise is? Yeah. And I agree. I think it's like 10% the peak experience in the medicine, and then it's 90% the integration of what came through. So the great promise, I like it as a paradigm shift for how we're addressing mental health, because, you know, it's still a little familiar, like it's active at the 5-HT2A serotonergic receptors. So it's still, you know, <laughs> It echoes what we're already doing with our antidepressants. So that's part of why it might create an enduring antidepressant effect and anti-anxiety effect. It's anti-inflammatory. It promotes BDNF. So we have neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. You know, we can grow and change and adapt and get unstuck. But part of the reason I find it most exciting is that it's, it's acknowledging that a big component of why we struggle with our mental health is psycho-spiritual. And it's been something that we've really neglected. I love 
Will Sue's quote on this. He's like said something to the effect of psychedelics are not just tools for healing trauma. They make spirituality palatable for a starving Western world. And I think that part of what I love is this mystical experience hypothesis of psychedelics that, you know, under the right set and setting and all the caveats of this needs to be safe and appropriate and indicated that it can somewhat reliably create a peak spiritual experience. And it's not like we need to convince everyone to believe in God. It's just that we need to invite everyone to at least be asking the questions to just pull the curtain back enough that we're like, wait. Could there be something somewhat incomprehensible happening here? And I think it takes the pressure off of what's really at the heart of the truest of true anxieties, which is the vulnerability of being alive, of loving other people, of not wanting to die and not wanting to lose the people that we love. And when we think that this material existence is really finite, this is all there is, of course, we're going to be hypervigilant and anxious and thinking that all we should ever do is go to the doctor and get a scan for cancer. But I think that, and like never leave our house, but I think that that's of course going to keep us maybe alive at the expense of living. And mm. that's not actually a solve for anxiety. So what we want to do instead is have an experience like a psychedelic ceremony where we're overcome with awe, where we might feel even just for a few hours an experience of being guided by a loving force that helps us learn in a very felt experience kind of way, this is what it could mean to surrender and trust. Okay, now I'm going to cry. That was beautiful. <laughs> that was our mic drop moment, I think. No, I agree. I think there is something so just anxiety obviating in that feeling of belonging to something bigger. And it doesn't eradicate that hypervigilance. But I think that there is something profoundly healthy about feeling like it's not all on me. Like there is some intelligence to this universe. It's not everything happens for a reason, certainly. It's will probably always be beyond our comprehension, even as we learn and understand more about consciousness and the universe. But it is, I think, any faith that, for example, that your mother is still present in your life and guiding you and helping you, like that's a beautiful idea. And if that makes life more meaningful and less scary and more connected, we need more of that. Yeah. For me, it, you know, if, at least at first when it felt like more of a conscious choice, when I was faced with this idea of my mom died too young and it was like, do I believe what my atheist scientism, skeptical upbringing has taught me to believe, which is the end is the end. It's senseless. There's nothing else that felt like an unbearably cold mm -hmm. version of the world. So I sort of made a proactive choice. Like I'm going to choose a different way of making sense of this, that not to say everything happens for a reason. I don't think it was fair. I don't think it was right. I just want to have some sense that she continues to exist in spirit form and that I can continue to connect with her. And I've found the kind of positive reinforcement of that worldview. And it's sad to me to think about missing out on that because it does bring me an immense amount of comfort and meaning. And yeah, and I think I'm okay if I'm wrong. Like if it turns out I'm totally deluded, then it brought me comfort and it kept me feeling connected to my mom. And so I don't feel like you really lose out. If you can, you know, there's no forcing this. You can't just force a worldview. 
Um, if it doesn't feel true for somebody, that's okay. And there's no better or worse with this, but I, for me personally, it has been comforting. We need more empathic physicians like Ellen contemplating our whole system and the larger context for our lives because it is so complicated. And I know that we love diagnosis and simple answers and ways to treat things that are as simple as a hammer hitting a nail. But life is just so much messier. And I'm so glad that we talked to about the bigger existential anxiety of being alive and what it is to connect to something bigger, because that just obviates so much of our general anxiety. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make the time here less precious or in some cases pressured, but it certainly helps to feel like you have support from a universal loving source that wants to lead you to your higher self. So I think her book is full of really useful tools and also some of these bigger important questions. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at the Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes. And to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.